Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. You're listening to RTE Radio 1. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one and of course here on RTE Radio 1 on Sunday nights. Tonight's Drama on One is the story of the 11th hour escape from the Nazis of Sigmund Freud, his wife Martha and their extended family in 1938. A finalist in the 2020 P.G. O'Connor Awards and starring Barry McGovern as Sigmund Freud, Onyini Widdy as Martha and Stephen Brennan as Carl Jung. This is The Silent Passenger by Ronan Brady. On Saturday, June 4th, 1938, Sigmund Freud boarded the Orient Express at the Vienna Hauptbahnhof with his wife Martha, his daughter Anna, Dr. Josefina Stross, housemaid Paula Fichtel, and Lun, his dog, a Chow Chow. They were hoping to escape the Nazis and planned to resettle in London, traveling through Paris. Freud knew he was dying from cancer, but his whole household was under another death sentence for being Jewish. The journey was a last-minute gamble. This play imagines his thoughts and those of his traveling companions. The train at Platform 5 is the Orient Express to Paris by Salzburg and Munich. Where's your father, Emma? I didn't see him go. He's been talking to the Gestapo. He's just writing something. He's coming back now. What did the Gestapo want, Papa? Oh, they just wanted absolution. I had to sign a statement saying they always treated me with the respect due to my scientific reputation. That I was free in every way and that I hadn't the slightest reason for any complaint. You were a long time just signing your name. Well, I also added something of my own. I can most highly recommend the Gestapo to everyone. (laughs) You what? You decided to show off at a time like this. They're still playing with us like a cat plays with a mouse. And you decide to be witty. We've lost our house. Our whole way of life is going. We may just get out of here still breathing. But that's far from certain. And you have to show that you're superior. But we are superior to them. I know that. Anna knows that. Dr. Stross, too. Even the dog knows that. But you, you have to show it. Ah, now, Lun, you need a good brushing. Here you. Mama, please sit back. We're moving. We're on our way. Don't let them see us arguing. It's important we all rest, Frau Freud. If the Gestapo want the professor to sign that kind of document, their commanders must have decided to let us go. The British and American officials have both said we all have safe passage. I hear what you say, Josefina. But how can we know? I'm sorry, Frau Freud. I didn't mean to cause offence. 
You haven't, Josephine. I'm just tense. I think my husband would prescribe a period of watching the scenery go by while it's still light. Siggy? Oh, yes, absolutely. This may be our last chance. Never thought I'd want to, but I'm looking forward to wishing the Danube goodbye. Would you have some sandwiches, Frau Freud? Oh, thank you. Dr. Strauss? Thank you. Anna? Hmm. Coffee? Hmm. Ah. Shall we play a game of cards? I'm just going to get some air, ladies. Hate really is older than love. Stronger, too. Hitler's proven that. I didn't see how powerful this mass death drive really was, nor how quickly it's grown. I saw a narcissist, and I think I diagnosed the collective neurosis. But I thought he was too stupid to succeed. I really thought the culture of the last two centuries was too large a meal for Hitler to eat. And there you are. He's more or less consumed Europe in five years. I told Princess Marie it was nonsense to suggest he'd spread his poison here in this country. Now we're only able to escape Austria because she's paid him our ransom. Talking to myself is such a relief. I find it so hard to speak to other people now. The pain can be intense. Some have false teeth. I have a false jaw in place of a cancerous one. Colleagues wanted me to leave for ages, but I refused. At first I thought uprooting would be giving in, weakening the defenses, saving ourselves at the expense of those we left behind. Then I began to worry. Could others be remaining because they see us staying? All my life I've avoided the tribal pigeonhole. Okay, we're Jews, but we're Viennese, citizens of a place with a half dozen languages, including Yiddish. Why should we single ourselves out? Isn't that asking to be slapped? I admit, we kept our bags packed. We kept up maximum fluency in English or French, but we also spoke German meticulously, like teachers. Vienna was our place, too. But that was them. Two days after Hitler entered Vienna in triumph, six brown shirts banged at our door. Paula led them into the hall. Then Marty met them with icy calm. Please come into our parlour. It's not our habit to leave visitors standing. You'll see our accounts are in order. You see, we knew to expect them. Their first aim was to grab the savings of Jewish families, so we'd decided to seem to comply by giving them some of our money. Marty got Anna to place 6,000 shillings on the table in front of them. Then I appeared behind my wife and daughter. I said nothing, just stared at the thugs in uniform. I didn't expect it to be as effective as it was. There was silence. Right. Well... We'll be back later. They didn't expect politeness. I still didn't want to leave, even though they'd taken our money and my passport. 
Of course, I knew they'd come back. How dare you slam this door in our face? Paula, let this gentleman in. Sigmund Freud, you need to come with us. You need to answer some questions at headquarters. Officer, my father is ill. He's unable even to climb the stairs to your offices. I can answer any of your questions on his behalf. Well, yes, that'll do. Anna. Don't worry, Papa. I'll be back soon. That was when I knew we had to go. Nobody's noticed, but I have a silent passenger here with me, in my waistcoat pocket. A statuette of Thanatos, god of death. He's a constant companion now, always there to the touch, my guide to the end. Right beside him, I have some capsules of Veronal. Thanatos has the ghost of a smile. He's happy in their company. It doesn't do to dwell on those who prove wanting, but I wonder what Jung is saying now. I gather he's recently changed his tune after jumping into bed with Hitler. Do his cheeks burn just a little in front of his devotees when he's reminded of his time with us? Does anyone dare to do that? Jung burst upon this family one afternoon 30 years ago with ideas, proposals, questions, professions of faith. We talked for 13 hours solid, through supper until well past midnight. That paranoid ideas and hallucinations contain a germ of meaning, a personality, a life history, and your analysis of dreams helped me. He knew that he'd encountered psychotic patients far more damaged than my clients. He described latent psychoses. I had pulled one patient out of a psychogenic depression. He went back home and married. He began to relapse, but his wife scoffed at his moods and discouraged him from seeking help from me. He shot himself. I had reservations about his approach to sexual neurosis, but that didn't stop me recklessly trusting Jung. I've done that too often in my life. I thought he understood the role of mythology. Instead, it turned out he'd actually swallowed the fairy stories whole. But there was one thing that worried me a bit, even at that time. We were there together in my study around 11pm, and he was telling some story about a dream premonition. The shot that hit the wall in my dream was found in the room where he died. Even talking about it now, my diaphragm feels as if it's becoming... Red-hot iron. That's it. That exteriorization. That's exactly what I mean. Oh, come on. You're being a bit fanciful. No, I'm not. That's an echo of what I've been saying. And to prove it, I now predict there'll be another bang. There. You hear that, Professor? Oh, Carl. In the next room, I had two heavy stone slabs... Egyptian steelies. When I investigated after you left, I found one of these had become loose and fallen. It dislodged a book which fell later. I know you're not here now, but I've never been able to persuade you that that was the case. Our friendship started to come apart when I began to realize you were determined to break off in another direction. You see, you'd found a pulpit. Skepticism has thrown modern man... 
back upon himself. Science has destroyed the refuge of the inner life. Freud's psychoanalysis has thrown a glaring light on the dirt, darkness and evil in this psychic hinterland. He's taken the utmost pains to discourage people from seeing anything else. Carl, what you wanted was consolation, and you blame me for not providing it. The wildest revolutionaries and the most virtuous believers are right behind you. But consolation is what I can never give. I just can't conjure it up. So you leave neurotic patients with no glimmer of an afterlife? With no hope beyond what they see around them? Wouldn't the poor devils prefer to be shut up in their illness rather than entering that dreadful icy desolation? Carl, I'm not a shaman, and actually neither are you. Such promises cannot be honestly made. You're just pretending to yourself that they can. Years ago, when Marty's and my daughter died of the flu, and then her son passed, aged only four, I knew there was no one to blame, nowhere to lodge a complaint. You need to face that, too. Instead, you make compromises. In 1934, when you came to head the psychotherapy movement, you made a huge one. We've all had to do that kind of thing. Little people like us have to protect ourselves. But you went much further. I could just about understand when you announced, 12 months into the Third Reich, the definite distinctions between Germanic and Jewish psychology, long apparent to sensible people, shall no longer be obliterated. Maybe you were buying time, I thought. But when two years later you told Time magazine... Hitler is the medium through which German policy is revealed. He is the mouthpiece of the gods of old. Then I understood your approach to mythology. Just in case the Fuhrer didn't get your point, you added... Communistic or socialistic democracy is an upheaval of the unfit against attempts at order. Thank you, old friend, for making that clear. Sorry, her Professor. Was I interrupting? Ah, no, Paula. Just talking to myself. I thought you were all asleep. I think they all are, Professor. I closed my eyes, but I couldn't drift off. But are you well? Should you be out here in the cold? We're going to be at Salzburg soon, and Lund needs a walk, so I'm just waiting. But you must be tired. Oh, you're really an old stoic, Lund. You put up with a lot. I am tired, Paula, but I just can't sleep right now. I'll come in later. Oh, by the way, Paula, I know my wife has spoken to you about this sudden move, but I haven't. I recognize how much of a wrench this must be for you. And I want to say how grateful I am that you're coming with us. Her, Professor. I threw in my lot with this family many years ago. Coming with you is my only hope. Really? Professor, the local Nazi cell has been watching the apartment for the last two months. They vanish just before any of the family emerges. But they're there every time I go out for messages or to walk the dog. They follow me. They lean over me when I go to pay bills and they take notes. Well, I... Sometimes they whisper insulting threats in my ear as I return. Then they open the door for me as if they were gentlemen. They have a savage hatred for you, Professor, but they're cowards. They're frightened what may happen to them if they harm a world-famous scientist like yourself. 
I've always told you how good a no-nonsense psychoanalyst you really are, Paula. Anna? Are you awake? Paula has gone out to your father with the dog. We're due at Salzburg in a few minutes. She probably means to take him for a walk. Your mother's still asleep. Your father's outside still. He seems fine, but... Josefina, I'm so glad you're here. When Max Shore took ill, I thought we'd have to manage my father without any medical help. Have you heard from Max? Dr. Shore's going under the knife tomorrow. He's had a grumbling appendix for some time, but now it's acute. He's not worried, but he couldn't defer the operation. I haven't had a chance to talk alone with you since then. He gave strict advice about your father, and he told me he gave you Veronal. Oh, when I heard the Nazis took you, Anna, my heart stopped. What did they do to you? First of all, Josefina, both my father and I demanded Veronal from Max. We're determined not to be tortured. We won't give them the satisfaction. My father has undergone 34 operations over the last 16 years. He's done everything possible to stay alive. He and I need life to mean something more than just suffering. I hope you're happy with that. Anna, you know how much I respect you. That's your decision. Actually, if I could imagine myself in your position, I think I'd take poison too. But... You look okay. Did they hurt you? They just played with me. They kept me waiting in one room for an hour, then in another for even longer. They wanted me to show fear, or to get angry, to recognise that they were in control. I just did nothing. I didn't lose my smile. I didn't bow or bang the table. Then they just let me go. We've just stopped at Salzburg, Mama. Papa's outside in the corridor. I think he's been admiring the view, and Paula's taken the dog for a walk on the platform. You slept a while. That man is outside all this time? He's determined, Mama. I think he's okay, Frau Freud. What's all this fuss? Paula just took Lund for a walk on the platform, and her family turned up to wish her goodbye. Then a schnauzer tried to pick a fight with poor old Lund. Paula got him back on board just in time. Whatever about our human wars, the dog wars will never end. You spent an awful long time before we stopped, out there in the corridor. Marty, we're being released from a prison which I always loved. Vienna was more than just where we lived. It's where I learned whatever I know. I do also want to live in England, despite the fog, the rain, the drunkenness, the conservatism. You see, I'm between two strong emotions here, and I'm finding it a little difficult to settle. But I will come in soon. There's another one of the Gestapo outside. Grüß Gott. Heil Hitler. Your papers, please. Here they are. Whatever about the Führer, 
we hope not to greet God on this trip, officer. Huh? Being smart? No, officer. Just being polite. Ha! <laughs> you people. Take your papers, then. That, you see, is my husband's sense of humor. Sometimes slightly out of place. I think he needs feeding. Herr Professor, can you bring me to the restaurant car? The others need a bit of rest from all this. Should I come too, Mama? No, darling, I really think you need some more sleep. I take it you want the soup. Anything else? No? Two soups, please. Siggy, I know how difficult this is for you. I can see how the pain has been draining the life out of you for the last few years. I know that must be hard to bear, but it's also hard to watch. And this is sad for all of us. It's also delicate. Princess Marie may have grieved the palms of the Nazi, but they may yet turn on us. Smart remarks are things we can't afford right now. I understand. I shouldn't indulge myself. Sigmund Freud, I married everything about you. Your atheism, your obsessions, your total inability to admit you've been wrong. But principally, I married your Kuzpa. My mother said you were too proud. Some of my relatives even told me you had the evil eye. But I married you and I'm still here. You'll be able to thrive in London. But we have to get there. Thank you. I know I call myself a godless Jew. But I suppose I do have one god. Logos. Sadly, he's not a very almighty one. It depends on everybody being much more reasonable than they now seem to be. Maybe you could have been a bit more logical. It was absurd, really. Us just sitting there while the madness and murder crept closer and closer. Thousands of other Jews have been begging for years to get out and escape the Nazis. Begging, but refused. By contrast, our friends in Britain have been begging you to come, and Princess Marie has spent a fortune to make it possible. Is it any wonder people begin to doubt your judgment? What do you mean by doubt? We all know that what you do is brilliant, but it isn't science. You can't prove any of it. It's speculation. Oh, we've been through this many times, Martha. It's certainly not simple science. It's not chemistry or engineering. The things we study never have just one cause. Examining the mind means turning one's own mind into a laboratory. There are consequences for that. And those are what make it speculation. We have to take it all on your word. I've uncovered concrete evidence. Yes, of course you have. Evidence of what your patients think they dreamed about. Evidence of your own dreams, insofar as you can remember them. Look, I'm not denying the importance of what you do, Sigi. You've found a way for people to relax and become themselves, to face their own truth. You're a guide, an interpreter. You tell magnificent stories. But you're still a mystery to yourself. 
Since I realized what I'd got myself into, it took me a long time to forgive your parents of what they did to you, or rather what you did to yourself as a result of them. So you're saying all this is guesswork? Another word for nonsense. Well, all this nonsense put food on our table, Marty, for many years. Siggy, you stride with determination into places you know nothing about. You find things out by blundering into them. Then you try to fit them together in the dark. We didn't know these things before you, and these things matter. But you're oblivious to any chaos you may have left behind. Siggy... You're totally 20th century. But you're like those explorers of previous times who brought smallpox, exploitation, Christianity, and then announced they owned the places they merely mapped. I'm being cruel now, Amand I. But never disloyal, Marty. It's healthy if uncomfortable to live with someone who doesn't have any illusions about me, but protects me nonetheless. And maybe I earned your reprimand. When Hitler had my books burned in Berlin five years ago, I just made jokes. That's when we should have started getting out. I suppose I thought a haughty disregard would keep him away. I had a duty to protect you and this family. If I've done that, it's only barely, and at the last minute. Well, we're here now. Coffee? Yes, please. And the professor will have a vermouth? Yes, thank you. I do love you, Sigmund Freud. But it hasn't been easy. No God, no afterlife, no eventual peace on earth. My grandfather, a chief rabbi, and I married all that. Careful, Martha. Siggy, nobody can hear us here, and nobody, especially you, is more careful than I am. But I remember our wedding so clearly. You seem to enjoy going under the chuppah, all that blasphemy. But you looked at home under the canopy of heaven. And I definitely saw you smiling when you crushed the glass. But I am Jewish. I've never been or wanted to be anything else. And I was marrying you, not bowing down before any religious symbol. Of course I was happy. While we're on the subject of symbols, I haven't told you that I managed to smuggle out my little statue of Thanatos in my waistcoat. Nobody noticed it. I just played the frail old man when they came to search us, and they feared I might crack like glass. It makes me sad to see you so morbid. Do you not think there's a contradiction in smuggling an image of death while trying to escape it? Not so much an escape as a postponement, in my case at least. And sadness about the inevitable is a bit pointless. Well, there's one other thing I want to say. I miss what my mother did, lighting the Sabbath candles and her prayer. Maybe it gives you no consolation but I just wondered if you remember your mother taking the taper to the candles. Yes, I remember it. But no, it gives me no consolation, any more than music or poetic effusions do. My motto was always the same as Kant's, dare to know. 
I always saw taking things purely on faith as a betrayal of that. I am sorry you missed the old religion, though. Oh, well. Are you getting tired now? Yes, a little. In the absence of any sudden religious conversion on the railroad to Paris by my chief atheist, I suggest we return to the carriage. Then we wonder what happened to us. Josephine, are you awake? Oh. Where's your father? He's still with my mother in the restaurant car. Is he all right? I haven't heard since they left. I really don't feel I'm discharging. Please don't worry, Josefina. He's okay. One thing about my father everyone around him needs to know. He thinks women are more vulnerable than we are. So he thinks he's caring for my mother while she's actually minding him. It's ironic that women play so subordinate a role in his theory while he depends so much upon us in his real life. Here he is, in a carriage full of women, and this entire journey is due to a woman. The princess. Marie Bonaparte, yes. My father attracts some unusual people, and I don't like some of them. I can't think of anyone odder than the princess, and yet we love her. What do you think, Paula? She's extraordinary, Dr. Strauss. She sometimes left Anna and me breathless. It was hard to keep up with her gathering the professor's books and personal things for transport. She's royal. Now that doesn't come out when she's talking to you or me, but it certainly did when she talked to the Nazis. She just smiled at them, raised her eyebrows, and they obeyed. You felt they were frightened of her. I haven't met her. But you will in Paris, when, if we get there. You know her story, don't you? She's one of Europe's richest women. She couldn't gain satisfaction in sex and decided she needed an operation to alter that, but it didn't. She believes Papa freed her from frigidity, even though he's not quite sure what he did. She became a psychoanalyst on the strength of that. The night after the first Gestapo raid, she sat on the stairs outside the apartment. I was there when the Gestapo came. She just plunked herself down on the stairs in front of them. So, you're back. Well, this is Princess Bonaparte. Hello, Colonel. You know who I am, and you know my great-uncle Napoleon was the ultimate mass murderer. But then I've always had a thing for murderers. They're so interesting, aren't they? You know I'm a student of the professors, don't you? So I'll just be sitting here on these stairs until morning in case anyone should try to disturb the Freud family. My husband, Prince George of Greece and Denmark, knows I'm here. Oh, those royals. They cause such problems when diplomacy isn't respected, don't they? That's right. A princess on the doorstep all night, I think. She was gone when I opened the door. But she must have stayed a long while as the Nazis left us alone for the whole night. Afterwards, she made me swear I wouldn't tell the professor that she was even there. My father's begun to see death everywhere. It frightens the rest of us. But Princess Marie Bonaparte makes him smile, always. He thinks she's a kind of life force. It fits that the central task she set herself is to help women have orgasms. Ah, welcome back, Frau. Professor, did you get something to eat? Yes, thank you. We're just leaving Munich. We're leaving the city where this German tragedy began, and I didn't even notice stopping here. 
I suppose we can only expect further disruption. My dear, I think we can begin to relax from here on. You know, towards the end of the Inferno, Dante gets disorientated. He fears Virgil, his guide, is leading him down to the center of hell again, by mistake. But he loyally follows Virgil anyway, and eventually they find themselves climbing up towards purgatory in heaven. Your father will always find a classical angle on any situation, Anna. But actually, I think he's right. We should all try to get some sleep now. Uh, before we do, I wonder if I could take the professor's blood pressure. Of course. Thank you. Anna, could you take off your father's coat and roll up his sleeve? Well, Professor, I gather you're looking forward to living in London. Did you never think of settling in the United States? <laughs> Josefina, my father has very little time for the USA. He finds it crude and commercial. You see, I've never really recovered from hearing the following miracle of American advertising. Why live if you can be buried for ten dollars? It really sums up everything for me. Now, let me get this cuff around you. Oh, I see you have a little statuette in your pocket here. Oh, that's just a little trinket of mine. I call it one of my traveling companions. That's good, Professor. What I expected. Let's get this thing off you and we can wrap you up again. Now, let's do as Frau Freud says and get some sleep. Well, this is ironic, Herr Professor Dr. Freud. Me meeting you in your dream. Mr. Pankyev, Sergei, what are you doing here? Professor, we're both here in your mind, although the roles are somewhat reversed. I cured you years ago. We'll come to that later. But first, I have to tell you, I met two philosophers on my way here, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Never heard of either of them before. Nietzsche was in very good humour, but the other fellow, Schopenhauer, was having none of that. Very dour. The jauntier one, this Nietzsche, says, Professor Freud is in there. We made up his bed for him. He's asleep now. That's the very best time to visit him. Then he nipped the grumpier one on the backside and walked off laughing. Schopenhauer was very aggrieved, trotted off angrily in Nietzsche's direction. Seemed Nietzsche was in for it. Professor, I repeat, I have no idea what that was all about. They looked to me as if, far from philosophy, they had nothing but mischief on their minds. But where... Ah, forgot, sorry. You're in dreamland, not heaven or hell. At your age, you're much too late for limbo. No, this is where you've done your best work. I usually enjoy meeting you here, but the last time was very harrowing. You were obeying voices, which ordered you to dissect your own legs and pelvis. You saw them in front of you as if they were in the dissecting room. And you didn't notice you'd lost any limbs, and you were struck by the absence of pain. Your pelvis had been eviscerated, 
and you could see thick protuberances which looked like piles. Uh, I'm beginning to remember. Well, you seem to have forgotten that I've been talking to you for some time. When I encountered you five minutes ago, you were explaining the nature of comedy. In jokes, we are releasing repressed energy. Energy that isn't needed anymore as a result of the joke. When we say someone has a great future behind him, or that vanity is one of his four Achilles heels, suggesting that he has four legs, we're expressing hostility towards him. We're bypassing our own internal sensors and giving vent to something we usually repress. I have to say, Professor, you are a witty man. But I think you like to cook jokes and eat them. Why else would you slit their throats and then fillet them in this way? Sergei, if I may. Of course, Professor. <laughs> You're even more witty yourself than I remember. My wit is mostly hindsight, of course. Yours is richer and more spontaneous, such as when you came to address my case. Sorry? That dream you imagined me having. The one where, suddenly... The window of my bedroom swung open of its own accord, and I saw six or seven white wolves sitting in a tree, staring balefully at me. I woke up screaming. Yes, we spent a long time in that dream. You sketched it. You even painted it for me a few times. Oh, but there's one problem. I don't remember having it. I do remember white sheets, but no wolves, no window... I wonder, was that your dream? I know you've persuaded yourself that it was I who had it, but I really didn't. But why would you make that up? To please a genius who has taken a deeper interest in me than my own parents did. Your analysis of my, your dream became a pillar of your analytic approach. How could I undermine that? No, oh, I think you're playing with me. Of course I am, but only out of respect for you. I now see those infinitely clever games you've played in your time. They made people see things they could never have done without you. You made listening and caring and pulling open people's feelings a normal part of treating the terrified. You turned analysis into an art form. And you've one last game there, hidden in your waistcoat pocket. You're not escaping. You have a date with that evil, smiling statuette. And nothing will prevent you keeping it. Well, you're partly right. I'm not escaping Thanatos. And nobody is under any illusion about that. But I'm meeting him on my own terms, insofar as I can. That's a right I demand for myself, and I believe everyone should have it too, if they want. Sergei, I see you're fading away from me. Good night, sweet professor. Good night, sweet professor. Mama, wake up! We're approaching the Rhine Bridge. We're about to enter France. So we're actually free. Let me stand up. I want to see this. 
Wasn't I talking to you earlier about Dante and Virgil? Yes, Papa. Well, the reason Dante was confused was that he thought they were climbing down Satan's leg. But the poet didn't realize that Satan was upside down. So he was actually going up. Oh, I'm very glad you set us right there, husband. They finally escaped together by a hidden road to see the stars. That's how Dante's Inferno actually ends. Can you see the stars, Marty? Anna? Yes. Yes, Papa. You too, Dr. Strauss? Paula? Yes, I can too. Yes, her professor. That's all I wanted. That's what I came for. Sigmund Freud and his traveling party did escape the Nazis. They met Princess Marie in Paris and went on to London the next day. Freud continued to practice and to write in London for over a year before his cancer became unbearably painful. He died by morphine at his own request three weeks after Britain and France declared war on Hitler's Germany. That was The Silent Passenger by Ronan Brady. Sigmund Freud was played by Barry McGovern and his wife Martha was Onyini Wiri. Anna Freud was played by Norma Shehan and Catherine Walsh played Paula Fichtel. Dr Josefina Strauss was Ali White. Carl Jung was Stephen Brennan. And Princess Marie Bonaparte was played by Catherine Walker. Al McKenna and Carl O'Neill were the Gestapo officers and Sergei Pankachev, the Wolfman, was played by Andrew Bennett. Other parts were played by members of the company. On sound was Gar Duffy. The Silent Passenger by Ronan Brady was directed by Daniel Reardon. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.